but welcome to Pepperdine. Um, thankful for all of you for making the time to be in the class with me this morning, and I hope that it'll be uh, more of a, a discussion than just me uh, spouting off information to you. This is uh, just stuff that I've been working through and thinking through on my own in my church context. Uh, my name is Brock Polk. I'm part of the ministry staff at the Heritage Church of Christ, which is in Fort Worth, Texas, uh, and I've been on staff there for 18 years. Um, I was fortunate uh, to be in the position, kind of the recipient of uh, a good, wise leader who led a succession plan that was successful, which is not always the case. That's not always the story about how that goes. But uh, Jim Hackney uh, preached at our congregation from 1979 through the end of 2013 and remains on our staff as our executive minister. Um, and I mentioned that to honor Jim, uh, but also to talk about the kind of the tenure that he has enjoyed at our church and the, the time that I've been able to share in that with him. Uh, he's been at our church for 44 years now, I, and I've been there 18. And so we've been through a lot together. We've, we've watched some stuff, you know. I mean, we have, we've cried some tears. We've, you know, we've... Uh, We've done the blood, sweat, and tears thing together uh, in ministry. We've, we've experienced a lot of uh, joys and a lot of sorrows and a lot of losses. And when we go to you know, funerals in town, we run into a lot of people that used to be members at our church and all of that kind of thing. And so, we, you, know, you know that feeling. I know I'm not, not t telling you anything brand new there. But I say that to say that the two of us, as we are reflecting on what we're seeing in our church happening right now. Even with all of that context, and even with all of that history, and even with all of those seasons and changes that we've been through, we feel like we're noticing something different. We're noticing a level of fatigue and a level of discouragement around our church family that rivals or maybe eclipses anything that we've ever seen before. Good morning. I'm so glad y'all are here. Some of my favorite, favorite friends kiddos over there that came into the room. So, so I'm convinced that there is a phenomenon that's happening, and it's prevalent, and it got started. In fact, the name comes from a movement that's happening in the global career culture called quiet quitting. Some of you may have heard of that before. Some of you don't know why I put a hashtag and you know made it one word in the class description, and that's totally okay. But sometimes, you know, if, if you aren't familiar with hashtags and you're not on TikTok, like it's it's all right. Quiet quitting may not be for you, but it's good for you to know about it. You know, uh, so last July there was a video that circulated on TikTok that started this hashtag trend, this movement, and this conversation about quiet quitting. The video is only 18 seconds long, so I want to show it to you so you have the context of what was going on out in the, in the great big world in starting this conversation. So hopefully it's going to, it did volume for me in testing. Idea of going above and beyond. Okay. You're still performing your duties, but you're no longer subscribing to the hustle culture mentality. Though I recently learned about this term called quiet quitting, where you're not outright quitting your job, but you're quitting the idea of going above and beyond. You're still performing your duties, but you're no longer subscribing to the hustle culture mentality that work has to be your life. The reality is, it's not, and your worth as a person is not defined by your labor. Okay, so that's the brief video. 
that jump-started this whole conversation, where the guy says, I've become aware of this idea, this concept, this trend of quiet quitting, where you don't quit your job, you just quit trying to get extra credit. You quit trying to do above and beyond. You quit trying to do the hustle. You quit trying to get ahead. You do what they expect of you and what they require of you. He says you're still performing your duties, but you're no longer subscribing to that hustle culture mentality that work has to be your life. Okay? So it's important as we start this conversation, I want you to be real clear on this, that quiet quitting isn't the same thing as quitting. All right? We're not talking about people walking away. Now, our churches have experienced some quitting. I mean, we know what that's like, too. And I'm sure that there are a lot of other classes this week that are talking about some of the issues that go along with that. There, have, there are other classes being taught here, here at Harvard about the challenges that churches are facing with attrition. I mean, most of our churches, most of our churches have lost a significant number of members in recent years. Some of that is just due to the aging, the grading of the flock, as we've called it. Some of it has to do with the pandemic. There's all sorts of combinations of factors that are contributing to that problem. And on top of that, if you're seeing what I'm seeing, we've also watched a wave of our ministers who have left their positions and walked away from vocational ministry altogether. And so we know what an outbreak of quitting looks like, but that's not what we're talking about here. That's not what we're talking about in this class. That's not what quiet quitting looks like. Because, and this is the point I want to make that I want to help clarify it for you the best I can. Quiet quitting is not about disconnection. It's about disengagement. It's not about severing ties but it's about weakening the bond. Quiet quitting a job means that you're still employed and you're still working, but you're only doing what you have to. You're not going to the after hours party with your coworkers. You know, you're not sticking around after five o'clock. You're doing what you have to do, just the bare minimum. And so the issue of quiet quitting as it pertains to church is about when people don't leave, but they do begin to disengage. In the congregation where I serve, I'm seeing more and more people who are still participating in worship, occasionally. You run into a mountain public, and they, I mean, you are still their church family. They still belong to your church, but they are increasingly disengaging from the body life of the church. And I'm having conversations with lots of other preachers and elders in other congregations who are reporting some of those same observations in their church families. Of course, we, we know research has been telling us for a long time that church engagement, church involvement has been on the decline. Gallup reported just two years ago that for the first time in U.S. history, church membership is now below 50% of the population, but remember, that's a measure of church membership, and those and and those are people. That's that's a measure of who is involved, who is connected to a church, and that's not who we're talking about. We're talking about people who are connected, but aren't as engaged as they used to be. 
One researcher put it this way. They said, fewer people are going to church and those who do go to church go less often. Churches are having a hard time finding volunteers for their usual programs and people are saying no to leadership positions in the church. Pastors are describing that people are not showing up for church but have also not left. That it's almost impossible to find volunteers. Numbers are down for Bible studies and small groups and service opportunities. Let me give you a moment to, to ask, is this you know, mirroring the experience that you're seeing? Some of you, this may just be something that you're interested in hearing more about, but I'd love to hear about how this is you know, manifesting itself in the context where you are serving. You know, even if just a couple of comments there, what are you seeing? Is this a reality where you, where you serve? For sure, and then the availability of streaming worship uh, as a result of the pandemic, mm -hmm. that's just made it even easier to quietly just step off and do your church in the living room and be disengaged from everybody else. Yeah, yeah, for all of the things that we laughed about together at, uh, at Harbor Unplugged last night, there was some truth behind all of that struggle, right, you know, about wanting people to re-engage in a way that mirrors or, or resembles what we felt before the pandemic started. What else is happening in your context that you've noticed disengagement-wise? I think one of the interesting things is they're aware of it. They Tell me more about that. that. So I had, we had a, I had a meeting uh, this past Sunday about one of our ministries and had multiple people come out of that meeting saying, hey, <coughs> our biggest issue is participation and we know we're a part of it. Mm -hmm. You know, and so, uh, yeah. which I thought that was fascinating yeah. from across multiple households. And be like, uh, you know, it's the fact that we haven't stopped, you know, we're, we're not, we haven't left, but we're not coming. Yeah. Um, and, you know, normally it's, I think that's a new awareness um, rather than, you know, in the old, you know, old days, um, oh, we're, we're here, mm -hmm. you know, but, you know, now it's, oh, we're here, we, we want to be here, but we're not participating and we know that. Sure. Yeah, it's just the new reality for us. But if we were available, we would be there, like that kind of conversation. Go ahead, uh, Nick. I think this happened before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Pandemic just make it easier because we people, it's about the face. So pandemic has become an easy excuse for us to disengage because our heart want to be disengaged a long time, but because the pride, because appearance, mm -hmm. now pandemic gives us excuse. That's so good, so good. Wow. A reflection on the heart behind this issue, Jeff. And I Mark. think I think the other thing we've experienced is it, the result of this means when we're going through something hard, there's a discernment question. We're we're not tethered to each other the same way. Yes. And so we're we're okay. It, it produces an actual quitting or leaving easier because we're not we're not tethered to each other. And so when something comes up, it's really difficult. It, it's easier to walk away. Yeah, and it could be it could be some big doctrinal issue that you're hashing out as a church, or it could be something as simple as do we wear require masks or not? Like it's you know it's it's all kinds of stuff that we're trying to discern together, but we don't have that connection. Thank you for that, Mark. What would you add? Um, I would say the availability of information and really good preachers online, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The availability to listen to Andy Stanley, yeah, folks like that, um, yeah. And so I, I think that makes it more of a, I can choose who I want to listen to. And if my minister is not 
you know, uh, uh, providing the same kind of quality content that I want? Is right. it worth my time? Because my time is valuable to me. Yeah. Um, so I think there's there's also that in there as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if the people in Philippi could have heard, you know, Sermon on the Mount online every week, like, would they have listened to Paul? Like, this, this is a relevant question. I'm going to do two more. Angela and then Eric. Um, we're seeing a lot of that. And also the people who have been engaged over however many years are tired. Um, yes. You're seeing more you seeing more people disengage and those who are trying to are just tired. Yes. It's like, oh, I, I can't do anymore. Yeah. When, when one person disengages, it makes it harder on the people who are still engaged, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. we're going to talk some more about that. Well, I think you're saying when you look at like a multi-campus church mm -hmm. where you have a main teaching pastor like in Andy Sandler, mm -hmm. the, the, mm -hmm. like the village, before they've decided to go autonomous, six campuses in the DFW area, mm -hmm. uh, they have that main teaching pastor every week that comes in via Zoom, you know, on their screens, but then when something happens, they have campus pastors who are there as the person on site, and I think that's where the disconnect is, where we still have, we, we have these incredible teachers we can listen to, but when life throws rocks at us, we still need people to turn to, like our church had three deaths in the last three days. Mm -hmm. Um, and so wow. one of them, two of those families have quite quit our church, but immediately you get that phone call. We still need you. We're still there. We, Andy so, Stanley didn't show Andy up to help. With the, the yeah. And so how does the church show that that void is not a one-time void, that there is a void in our hearts that we need to, that yeah. we need to be filling on a regular basis? Yeah. This that is such, thank you, Eric. This is such helpful input, and I, I'm hoping it's helping you see what I'm seeing, this epidemic of quiet quitting, this just progressive disengagement that's happening in our churches. And I know that if we continued this conversation that we're having and continued to get everybody to share their different pieces of input and experience and observation, I know that we would have a lot of different ideas and and. Some of them are things that we have, we know. I mean, that's part of the reason. That's part of the problem. We would have a lot of different suggestions about where this is all rooted, but I really want us to key in some on part of what Angela was uh, talking about, about the level of fatigue that's happening among our people. Um, I know that it can be tempting to dismiss people who quiet quit for their quitting. It can, be, it, it can be easy to be critical or disparaging of somebody that has taken that easy way out, you know? In the work world, in the, when the real conversation about quiet quitting was going on, there were a lot of media personalities and celebrity type people. I'm talking about some of the get the hosts on Shark Tank and, and Ariana Huffington and people like that who made really disparaging remarks about the quiet quitting movement because what they were saying was, oh, this is just Gen Z being lazy. You know, this is just people not wanting to work hard. If you actually want to be successful in this life, you have to do the hustle culture thing. You're going to have to stay after 5 o'clock and do all, you know, all of that. There was a lot of pushback to the quiet quitting conversation that says, no, the, the problems that you're talking about are not real problems. You just need to toughen up. You, know? you just need to just, just make yourself rise to the occasion. And we could... We could speculate some 
about how today's younger generations just don't appreciate how good things are. We could talk at length, I'm sure. We could grouse about how difficult things were for our generation and the generations that came before ours. But I want to ask us as Christians to look past any of those preconceived notions. Because I think that we're going to find that there are some deeper, real, relatable issues that are at play. Some of you will recognize the name Russell Moore. He's the editor-in-chief at Christianity Today um, and has been just a, a really, really incredible voice to listen to and read his uh, writing in the last couple of years through this time of disruption in our national and global faith. But he says, quiet quitting in the workplace stems from a worker's sense that what they do doesn't make a difference. Okay? He says, in, and he's talking, of, he's not talking about church here, he's talking about the workforce, the actual quiet quitting movement. But he says, the main reason that people want to just quit at five o'clock and not try to do the extra stuff is because they can't tell that what they're doing for those eight hours a day is really moving the needle. They can't tell that it's making any difference. They can't tell that things are actually changing. And he goes on to say, he says, it's tempting even for people like me, talking about himself, Russell Moore, he says it's tempting for me to think that the same, to feel the same way about church. And I don't know why my slides are not going to show you um, this quote, but I'll read it to you. He says, those of us who see what's happening, he wrote an article about this in Christianity Today last year. He says, those of us who see what's happening in church life might easily come to the same conclusion that nothing will change no matter what we do. We might keep attending, keep praying, keep teaching, keep serving, but never really anticipate anything different than the same crises. Can you imagine? Can you imagine struggling to hold out hope about the future and the potential of your church? I can. <laughs> I can relate to that. And I bet you can too. I bet there's been some moments. I bet there have been some days in your journey when you have been so discouraged and so fed up and you wondered with all of your faith background and all of your track record with God and all of your confidence in God's ability and all of your education and all of your training and all of the great things that you have loved about the church that it helped grow you into the person that you are, I bet there have still been some days on your journey when you have wondered to yourself, is this working? Like, is it making any difference? Are we doing any of this right? Is my energy and my effort and my contribution to this movement making a difference? Russell Moore says that's the source of the quiet quitting problem in the workforce is people saying, I can't tell that what I do matters. And I can tell you that I've had a lot of days where I've wondered if what I'm doing matters. In fact, I think everyone who has been serving in church for very long has had some days and some seasons where they felt dismayed like that, and if we have felt that kind of discouragement as church leaders who are propped up and 
platformed and encouraged and resourced, if we have felt that kind of discouragement, then I want to suggest to you that we can use the memory of those feelings of dismay, the memory of those discouraged days to help us extend new grace to the people who are disengaging from our church. That we can look back at the moments when we thought, I'm not sure this is working. I'm not sure how much longer I can do it. I'm not sure what difference I've made. That we can remember, hold on to, go back and latch on to that feeling and use that to help us extend <clears throat> extra grace to the people who find themselves disengaging from our church. Ming, what would you share? Well, I would make a comment. I, I, I used to think in that way, I can make a difference. Mm -hmm. Now I think I cannot make any difference. Mm -hmm. But I still fired up. The, the, the difference what I'm thinking is this. Not so much I can make a difference. It's, I think in my role is to see what God will do yes. to make a difference. Yes. Because if I think he, because that's what I've been Christian for 20 years, for plus 20 years, that's what I'm thinking. I can make a difference. Mm -hmm. But reality is this, I cannot. Yes. And the only thing I can do is be the place to see God make a difference. Yeah. And that's what excites me. So I am out of the picture. It doesn't really matter what I do, but that's why eternal life is. Eternal life is to know God. Uh -huh. What that means is, to, to see God doing what he's doing. And I have a privilege to learn about that. That's my excitement. Even when a church totally falls apart, yes. I say, gee, what yes. God is going to do now? Ming, <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I hope you'll come up here at the end and say that closer to the microphone. <laughs> because that's the bottom line I hope everybody walks away from this class hearing, whether I say it that well or not. Like, that was beautiful. Thank you. Because that's exactly what I hope that we're going to get to during the course Sorry. of this. No, 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 not at all. I, I don't mean it that way. I'm, I'm so thankful that you're tracking with the conversation and that that's where your faith is already helping helping lead you because that's where I want us to go. And yes, um, first of all, going back to you perceive this as the big challenge, I know a, a, a large uh, Presbyterian church and Baptist church doing the same thing, so mm -hmm. the way it's widespread, so... But also, uh, maybe it's an opportunity to re-examine how we do church. Yes. And people say, uh, what's the nature of relationships spiritually with each other? Yes. And, and maybe try to restore the fundamental. Hope I didn't steal anything. No, no, no. That's, that's so, anyway, so helpful. So helpful. That's your congregation to do, and that's all we've done at the individual level. That's the challenge at all the time. Yes. It, it tells me that you're tracking with the conversation where I'm hoping it goes anyway. So okay, thankful. Yeah. Thank, I'm, I'm so thankful you shared that. That's very helpful. There's all sorts of reasons. Mark, let me go ahead. Oh, jump in there. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, had a conversation with uh, Rick Gibson, mm -hmm. um, and he pointed out that the whole idea of membership in general is just a fading concept. Yes. Whether it's the church as an organization or what, whatever it is, it mm -hmm. could be all kinds of clubs or anything. The idea of being a member is kind of a, it, it used to be a firm concept that people had a hold of, and now it's kind of a, uh, what is what does membership really mean? Yeah. It's, there's a lot, it's more gooey than it used to be, mm -hmm. um, and it's becoming, it's going to become more gooey, 
because the young generation really has more options and it's just going to keep moving in that direction. And so um, I think that's also part of the, part of the equation um, for ministers to, to not just say, well, you're a member, you committed to Jesus, so you got to show up on Wednesday nights. Right, right, right. Which is kind of how we want to, you know, you're obligated. You obligated yourself, so you're not showing up, you're, you're a bad person. Yeah. Rather than, what am I doing to try to motivate them? And you go, well, gosh, now they should, they should be motivated by the cross. They yeah. shouldn't be motivated. I shouldn't have to motivate <laughs> them. But there's this... I should. Yeah. If I'm the loving, right. I should try to motivate them. I should want them to want it, and not just want them to feel obligated to it. And it's a, it's it, there's there's kind of a, a thing there, and I don't exactly know what it is, but mm -hmm. I think there's something there as well. Yeah, it's like we're trying to impose a, a membership model and a and a, a paradigm that worked for us on you know thinking. Well, if it worked for us, then it's bound to work for a lot of others. And I agree with you that the membership thing is getting gooey. It's getting different. I don't know if that's good or bad, but it is. You know, it, it, I don't think it has to be bad, but we have to adapt to it. We have to recognize it. So, so there's all sorts of reasons why people would find themselves feeling highly discouraged at church. I don't have to make you a whole long list of that. Some, some of the people are discouraged because they're physically and emotionally tired and burned out by the incessant demands of what it takes to be an active part of a church family. Some of them are discouraged and distracted by other real life issues. You could, I mean, you could think about uh, some of the uh, parable of the sower kind of reasons, you know, about some of the, the problems, the, the obstacles that get in between people and the kind of engagement um, that we dream of for them at, uh, at our churches. But there's a family at my church that I want to tell you about. That um, two years ago, he was, he was one of my elders um, and you're not supposed to have favorite ones, but he's one of my favorite ones, you know, kind of thing. He was the kind of guy that just was constantly growing, constantly trying to grow. And they had five children. And the, over the last couple of years, um, their oldest child has, has gotten into some trouble and, and ended up being, you know, diagnosed with some, uh, psychological disorders and, and has really gone off the rails. Uh, second child has gotten involved with, with drugs and there's, there's all kinds of struggles that are going on for this family. And what I noticed was he suddenly started to pull away from, from the eldership role and, it, and it's, I mean his life was busy. You got five kids, you got a busy life, you know, but that was always the case. And when I would talk to him about it, what I was hearing was not, you know, guilt. It wasn't, it wasn't that old line that I've heard before, maybe I'm no longer qualified to be an elder. It was just discouragement. It was just the pain of carrying all of the different roles and responsibilities and concerns and all of that kind of stuff that he's dealing with in his life. And what I've noticed is these are some, I mean, these are some of the most devoted, dedicated church people. That have, I mean, they've been there that whole 18 years that I've been at Heritage, loved them to death. And now I see them once every six weeks. And what I'm hoping that we can hear in those stories, and I would imagine you can probably replace that family with one from yours. You know, you, you know stories like that. But what I'm hoping we can hear in those stories is a story that makes us feel compassion. Not frustration, 
not disappointment, not derision. I don't want us to. I don't want us to talk about. Well, we, if they would just toughen up, if they would just do what they know is the right thing to do. What I'm hoping we'll do is feel compassion about this. Todd Bolsinger, and I have to hurry a little bit, but Todd Bolsinger at Fuller Theological, who wrote uh, Canoeing the Mountains and then later Tempered Resilience. Um, he talks about the difference between a failure of nerve, which is a whole different concept that I'd love to talk about, but we can't talk about it today. He talks about the difference between a failure of nerve and a failure of heart. And he says, experiencing a failure of heart, I was hoping to put this quote on the screen for you, if it'll work. Here you go. Experiencing a failure of heart means that we become so discouraged, so brittle, so brittle and cynical, that we disconnect from the people that we're called to lead. And we abandon, either emotionally or physically, both the people and our calling. Now, he's talking to leaders, but I think we can make the jump here and say, when we become so discouraged, brittle, brittle and cynical, that we d disconnect from the people that we're called to share life with, that we're called to love, that we're called to serve, that we're called to partner with, in serving the world. This is a failure of the heart. And what I mean by that, and I, I don't even like using the word failure here very well, but what I like to talk about is this is heartbreak. This is spiritual heart disease that we're watching happen. Go ahead, Nate. Uh, I'm thinking in the modern day church, or maybe ever since the constant thing, that the church history, what I see is we Christians have a martyrdom syndrome. Mm -hmm. What I mean is martyrdom syndrome is somehow we're noble to be able to sacrifice ourselves better than normal people. And that is really our downfall. What we need to realize when Jesus said, my yoke are light, my burden are light. And when I look at a Christian, mm -hmm. the first thing many people say, oh, Christian life is hard. Yes. <laughs> you see, it's hard. That's why I don't want to be a Christian, but I want to go to heaven. Christian life is hard. That's something's wrong. We're teaching people something's wrong. It's not we, the gospel, is it? Yeah. It's not good news. Right. That's mm -hmm. not good. So what I need to see is this. I find the gospel nowadays is really nice. It's not so much you're working hard. It, it is really, really, you have to see, is that really good for you? And then we like to say that's selfish. Hmm. You see, the problem what we are seeing is a lot of things God wants us to do, we view it as a selfish, and we have to sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Why? You know what it is? Why you want to sacrifice? Sooner or later, you want to quit. You don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. Because eventually, it will catch up on you. The, the changing of heart is really, at least to me, is you really enjoy what you're doing. Yes. It's not a sacrifice. Because you, why you love it so much, you see it's good for you, mm -hmm. then it's no longer a burden. Mm -hmm. I think that, but we often kind of say, you have to sacrifice, you got to do this, because God loves you. Now realize God loves you, so it should be good for you. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a lot of problem what we have, and it's just changing of a heart. Jesus wanted us thinking outside the box, and we <clears> like to thinking inside the box, mm -hmm. and, but of course, thinking outside box can be dangerous too, because 49 <laughs> humans can come in and take you over. So be careful. That's beautifully said, Ming. I'm so thankful for that, and I and I totally agree with you because I know that all of us, you know, in, when we think about 
leading other people into a relationship with Jesus, what we dream of is that they would get to the point that they wouldn't feel like service felt like a big sacrifice. We, we want them to get to a point where it would feel like a great joy. But I also hear what Angela is saying too, that when you're serving for a long time and you're finding great joy in it, but you find that you're also increasingly more and more alone doing it because there are more and more people walking away from it, it gets lonely and God does want us to rest. You know, like God doesn't want us to only find our joy in our, you know, the acting out of our Christian service and that kind of thing. Which is why I want us to make a, a, a Bible turn here. And before, before we do that, I want to make mention too <clears throat> that we've been talking about this. I've been talking about this in the third person as if it's, it's the people back home, you know, who are experiencing this. But I also want to acknowledge that it's us too. You know, like, I think if we're being honest with ourselves, like we're, we're involved in this hustle culture, this Christian hustle culture that says we got to keep doing more if the church is going to be successful, like if the church is going to make strides, if yada, 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 we've got to keep doing more. And I want to remind us, I want to remind us of a very familiar short story, Luke chapter 10. It's a story that most of you almost know by heart. But Luke chapter 10, verse 38, the story of Martha and Mary. Jesus and his disciples were on their way, and he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Which is, I mean, you can't make the case that Mary was like walking away from what was most important. Like Mary's doing important stuff, but Martha's feeling like Mary has disengaged from the mission that needed to be accomplished that day. And this is Jesus' answer. Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what's better, and it will not be taken from her. I know this is a familiar story, but when I read it, I find it to be so convicting for me personally because deep down I'd really like my church to have a lot more Marthas. You know? Like I'd really like to have a few extra people who were trying to lend a hand on doing all the preparations that I think need to happen. What I mean is, I've, we've got a lot of tasks that we'd like to get done in our congregation and in our community. And we've got a lot of volunteer positions that need to be filled, or at least we think they do. And we've got a lot of dreams for our church's programming and outreach and ministries that we can't seem to get done because we need more people to step up and help. And I'm fortunate to work with a big staff of people that's made up of really hard workers. But we frequently find ourselves in meetings having conversations about how we could get more of the Marys to step up and help carry the load. And we pray together and we ask God to raise up more ministry leaders and volunteers to help us accomplish those big dreams. But sometimes I wonder, when I read this story, I wonder, 
If our dreams and our expectations for what the church gets done might be bigger than Jesus's expectations for what the church needs to get done. I saw a tweet from a pastor that I thought was helpful that you might be able to relate to. Someone said at our elder meeting last night, when Jesus doesn't move fast enough and get things done, people will want their pastors to move fast enough and get things done, and sometimes pastors will want to oblige. And I just thought that was wise. Like, I fall into this trap. I'm going to get out of the way of that. I fall into this trap a lot. And what it does is it makes me become frustrated and cynical and disappointed with the people who I see being disengaged or progressively more and more disengaged in our church family. And then I hear Jesus saying, you know, there's really only one thing that's needed. There's really only one thing that's needed. Those, those people that feel like they're disengaging, they, they don't need a job. They need some time with Jesus. Like they need, they need to have a moment where they actually get reminded about why they, be, they began this journey, why they fell in love with this in the first place. I can relate to that because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm pressing hard. We're all, we're doing this for God, right? I mean, it's really important, or at least it seems so important. And I'm sure that that must be something akin to what Martha was feeling in that story. She must, she must have, been, she's probably making the same preparations that she made every day or every Sabbath at her house. But this time, the Lord was in her home, like she's doing it for God. It feels so big. And I'm sure it would have been nice to have some more help. And so you can see why she asked Jesus about directing Mary to join her. But Jesus' response to Martha upsets the priorities. He knows the effort Martha's putting in. He can hear all the claiming and the work that's happening in the next room. It's not a big house. He knows everything she has planned, but he says, Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Indeed, only one. And what I think as we face this quiet quitting moment on a grand global scale, but also within our church, is that the world does not need us to try harder. The world and our church family and the community around us, like they're not needing us to just double down on our effort. They're not needing us to do the extra credit to, to, you know, to create one more service. They're not needing us to try harder. And if we resort to emergency tactics... And if we, if we speak and work out of desperation because we're afraid that it's not going to work unless we do, then it's like we're acknowledging that we never really believed that faithful presence is what the world needed to begin with. Like the world, it, it, they're not, they don't need us to be like more intense ministers than we've been. What they need us to be is people that actually believe what we've said we believed all this time. 
They need us to be people who are spending time with Jesus and letting Jesus set the direction, right? They need us to be people, as Ming has pointed out, they need us to be the people who are not so obsessed with trying to control outcomes and trying to set the direction. They need us to just be the people who have obviously been with Jesus in the shows. And so when Jesus says to Martha, Mary has chosen the better thing, and it will not be taken from her. It's not because like Jesus and the whole crew doesn't need to eat that day. You know, but he's like, at the end of the day, what we all really need is a group of disciples who have actually been with Jesus. And so I want to encourage you that as you're seeing this movement play out in your churches, this movement of people who are becoming more disengaged. And sometimes it's going to be people that you've partnered with for decades. It's going to be people that, that your first response is going to be like, what's the matter with them? They know better. But I want to encourage you to capitalize on that moment to respond not with tough love, but with a more therapeutic response, a more compassionate response, a more sympathetic response. My time is flying by and I'm having to cut a few things, but I wanted to, I do want to share this uh, book recommendation and this quote with you. This book is called Non-Anxious Churches. It's only about two years old. It may be one year old, um, but it's excellent. It's super, super helpful um, for helping remind us about being people who have been with Jesus and are not anxious about trying to control outcomes all the time. But this quote is helpful. Mark Knight says, we need to allow people to be human. And we can't and shouldn't expect perfection from people, but need to be okay with the mess as people walk through life. <clears throat> the first step towards this, is, towards this future is empathy. The modern church is seriously lacking in empathy and we need to normalize it. I want to finish the rest of the quote for you. It's not on the screen. He says, not sympathy. Sympathy is saying they're there with a nice pat on the back, but empathy is sitting down with the person in their pain and weeping with them. Empathy is recognizing the pain, whether it's valid or not, and being a friend in the midst of that pain. Empathy is seeing the sin in someone else's life and recognizing their sin in my life, and we both need to run to Jesus. You need to show empathy to those who come at you, ready to take you down and throw you out. You are their enemy, and they want to step all over your heart. This person is also on their own journey, and you need to show empathy and grace for those who fail in front of you. And so it's all about a therapeutic response to the stress and the anxiety and the struggle that people are experiencing, but in part our churches have put on people because we have, we've told people that the outcomes are up to us in many cases. And so if you hear nothing else, and man, I'm so thankful for the summary that you helped to establish too, is to say, this is God's project. We can still count on the words of Psalm 23, you know, that I lack for nothing. I lack for nothing. And even if, even if it seems like our organizations are struggling, dwindling, the question should be for us, okay, what's God going to do next? I love that answer. I mean, it's so, so helpful. And, uh, and if I have one more comment. Please I do, yeah. You, said, you know, Jesus is sufficient. 
I think one of the things is this. If other people can tell you have been spending time with Jesus, mm -hmm. because especially for ministry leaders mm -hmm. or elders, because oftentimes we are so caught up on to do things, make things happen. I think perhaps the golden opportunity, when things are bad, you're still happy and joyful. So that will give people hope too. You are illustration of God's grace. Mm -hmm. And uh, we cannot change in people, but we can reflect God's light on us. And so that is something we should think about. So good. So good. Y'all have been so helpful, and your your input has been helpful to me. i got to tell you, I'm cutting half of my material because we're out of time, <laughs> and I hate that. But I want to highly recommend to you the, the resources that I've mentioned here and the, the authors that I've quoted here. If you, if you aren't familiar with the work of Russell Moore and Todd Bolsinger and now Mark Knight, this is, a, this is his first book. Um, but I, I can't recommend this book highly enough. And uh, Todd Bolsinger's two recent books, Canoeing the Mountains and Tempered Resilience, both of those are going to help us be the kind of non-anxious presence in leadership that the world really needs us, that our church really needs us, that our heart needs us, and our Lord needs us to be. Okay, so let me leave you with that, with those recommendations, and thank you so much for making time to be with me this morning. I appreciate it.